work is building on Poincaré, actually. Uh, my, okay. The work on weak stability boundaries and low energy transfers to the moon and using, using ideas from uh, dynamical systems theory and applying those to uh, space travel. Um, I was among the first to do that. And to be honest, I built, if you want to know the individual person I built on, it would be Charlie Conley. Right. However, if you want to look at the big picture, it would be Poincaré, of course. Uh, but <clears throat> but Poincaré, when I was doing, <clears throat> excuse me, when I was doing all this back in 1985, um, you know, with the, I'm, I'm referring now to the low energy transfer mm -hmm. a bit, uh, work. Um, when I started that 1980, 86 is when I started that. Um, the only other group that was doing anything along those lines was um, a group in Barcelona, uh, Jean Malibra, uh, Carlos Simo, and uh, last name is Mad Professor Martinez. Um, but mainly Simo and Libra, and um, there wasn't anybody else. In fact, I knew Jean Malibra, I know him quite well, and um, I was introduced to the whole idea of, of, of doing low energy transfers to anywhere for that matter um, by him. And that was back when I was at Boston University, prior to going to JPL, I was at Boston University in the late, in, from 80 to 85. And during that period, John Malibra visited me at Boston University. And I was fresh out of graduate school doing hardcore mathematics with no applications to anything. Just theorem proof, theorem proof, um, this was during your PhD with Moser, or? Yeah, after doing the PhD with Moser, and it was a lot of uh, regularization theory and just a lot of theorems improving things from a mathematical perspective with really no intent to apply anything. And uh, when Jama Libra visited me when I was at Boston University, um, he introduced me to what he and his group are doing with ESA on applying uh, dynamical systems to um, uh, the, uh, the the comet mission um, at the time they were working on I forget the name of it but uh, ESA was interested in, in, in not a comet it was a, it was a libration point mission um, ah, I can't remember the name now it's terrible so um, um, he introduced me to the the idea they were using dynamical systems theory to find low delta v to put payloads in orbit about uh, Earth, Moon, actually Earth, Sun, uh, L1 point, mm -hmm. um, and, um, and using a very manifold ideas and all of that. They were the first to really do that. Mm -hmm. and, uh, but they were interested in going to Lagrange points in the halo orbit. It's using low delta V for that. They were the first to do that. And ESA had funded them quite generously at that time. So he told me what he did. I sort of forgot about it. And then I went, to, I went to JPL a year later in 1985. And uh, while I was doing my regular work there on mission design for the Galileo mission to Jupiter, and, the, and mainly that one in 1986, um, I was also working on, on um, I was also challenged by the problem of getting a spacecraft to the moon, the so-called Lunar Getaway Special uh, Mission LGAS I sent you the paper I wrote on that, and that was 1986. And uh, that was, they wanted to get this little tiny ion spacecraft to the moon um, on, in a study. Um, and 
that's, in the meantime, I had been working on um, sort of following through on Jean Libre's ideas about what they were doing, mm -hmm. but, uh, but they were not doing ballistic capture at the moon. They were doing something totally different, going to Lagrange points. In a sense, it was ballistic capture also about Lagrange points, but it's a much easier problem to go around a Lagrange point and ballistic capture than going around the moon or any other planetary body. And up to that point, no one had ever done that. Uh, that was brand new work. And um, so I was inspired by Libra and Simo and went off in that direction. So uh, when I got in the Lunar Getaway Special Project in 1986 at JPL, they, so such a small spacecraft with such small engines, they really needed ballistic capture on paper anyhow to make that work. And, uh, but there was, there was no, nothing in the literature about it. So um, I, <coughs> I came up with the first ideas on that. And that was that, that conference paper I sent you. Mm -hmm. um, and believe it or not, that is the first paper ever done on weak stability boundaries and ballistic capture. And there is nothing else in the literature. I've always challenged people, find something before that. Find something. Mm -hmm. I've always found that no matter what I work on, and you'll probably find the same thing in your own work perhaps, but whatever you work on, you think you're coming up with something new, but if you look, go back far enough, there's always somebody who did something prior. It's rare mm -hmm. that you come up with something that virtually no one ever looked at. And um, in 1986, when I did this Lunar Getaway special, there was literally much, nothing in the literature about ballistic capture. In fact, the word wasn't even there. I made that up. Mm -hmm. They used it, astronomers used it for comets. Comets were getting ballistically captured at Jupiter. They did use that term, but there was nothing so the astronomers were sort of wise to it. They knew that comets could do this, but there was nothing in aerospace whatsoever. So uh, when I went off and did this in 86, um, as a co-project together with my work on the Galileo, that was my main work. So this was another project I was simply working at at JPL. Um, I had to make it all up. And that 87 paper was where all that is written down. Um, but it was, it was actually, as it turns out, and I've shared this much later in my life, I didn't do it at the time because it wouldn't have been the right thing to do, but I was, I was all inspired by a painting I did. <laughs> so I, I always tell people, which is true actually, that work was actually inspired by a painting. Um, and from the painting, I went to the algorithm. Uh, this was in 86 when I was doing this because there was no other way to get the spacecraft to the moon. We were desperate to find a way and I was my, it, was, it was an exciting project for me. So, um, uh, from the work I knew Libra did in SEMO, I knew that if there was going to be a ballistic capture region about, say, the moon instead of a Lagrange point, it was going to be wildly more complicated than what they were doing. And I just knew that I didn't have the mathematical, even though I had a good training in math, certainly not to do that. So I figured, well, forget the theory on this. I, I basically knew it was involved, uh, but I didn't have the, the, the ability to do it then. So I... I relied on a painting, and then ultimately it was the computer that did this. But uh, when the computer found this ballistic capture transfer, even though I knew roughly what the, the mathematical theory was going on around it, it was way too complicated to, to remotely understand at that point. And, and if you fast forward, it wasn't until 2010 that we truly started to understand this. Uh, as you, and you know that work that I did with Francesco and Marion Gidea, that was a key work. And, it took a long time and uh, there was actually some work by Jerry Marsden and Lowe and, uh, that also shed light on this too. Also and there's cool, also I something I did. JPL, right? Yes, and Martin Lowe from JPL and, 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 um, yeah, right. and Jerry Gerald Marsden um, and uh, Kuhn and, and Shane, uh, Shane Ross. Uh, that was in um, 
98 they did that work. Um, but I, I did a paper in 94 when I visited Barcelona where I laid out actually what Morrison and his group did in, in 98. And I laid it out and described exactly the mechanism they came up with. They didn't reference that, unfortunately. But so I was sort of aware of it. But, but to, to really do it mathematically, it, and, and the work I did with um, Francesco Taputo and Marion Gidea um, in 2000, I believe it was 2010, which laid, which really gave a lot of insight into what was going on with, with weak stability boundaries, I should say. Um, that, uh, we still don't, it's, it's a good work, but it still doesn't prove anything. It, it does a lot of mathematical, numerical work, but there's no solid proof today. There, there's no proof today of what a weak stability boundary is. We, we know what it is mathematically roughly, but to really prove it, there's no proof um, at all. And, and when I spoke to Moser about this book in the, in the late 90s, he was very impressed with the weak stability boundary work. Um, and, and of course, the high 10 to the moon, that, that he was impressed with. But he said, he told me very clearly, he said, it'll be 50 years before anyone rigorously proves what a weak stability boundary is. And he's probably right. Uh, it'll probably be, because he did that in 90, probably like 2040, I would suspect. So anyhow, to go, to go back to where we were, um, that particular work on Lunar Getaway Special was really the foundations of, of ballistic capture about the moon and, and, uh, and transfers of the moon. And um, it, it was a two-year transfer to the moon with that, but it did work. And uh, ultimately, although it was widely criticized by JPL, believe it or not, because it was such a long flight time, mm -hmm. And they didn't really want me working on it because it involved concepts they were just not accustomed to. And I, I can't blame them. At that time when I was doing this work, nobody was doing anything remotely using chaos dynamics. And, and, I, and at, the black, at that time, instead of weak stability boundary, we used the word fuzzy boundary. So the whole idea of what, what I was doing was so different from anything anyone ever heard of. It wasn't accepted right away. And, like I say, I totally understand. Uh, but ultimately, it was the uh, smart one of ESA that used it, that particular one. So that one was used in 2004. Mm -hmm. But uh, the first one, actually, was the High 10, which, uh, so it's a very interesting story. Um, and ESA, right, and I'll, I'll do one last statement because I don't want to talk too much in this interview. But uh, just to fill the gap on applications, um, I was just at ESA in Darmstadt, uh, uh, last um, February, and I gave several talks there, and I have a good relationship with them because I work with them a lot in the 90s and um, so on and so forth. But I, I gave a, a lecture there on several things I'm doing, um, and any event, I was reminded that the um, the Bepi Colombo mission to uh, Mercury is using a weak stability boundary ballistic capture, and uh, they showed me their key paper on this, which uses the term, actually ESA is very good with this. They, they, they use weak stability boundary and ballistic capture. But that's another one, that's gonna be a major one illustrating um, the original, they're using the, they're using the original idea that I came up with and they used in SMART1 back in 1987. That same technique that was done way back then is still using that technique. Mm -hmm. Not the new ways to do it, it's that technique. The backwards integration and so on and so forth that, that we did. Mm -hmm. So that's sort of a, a very long answer is something you were alluding to. I just want to give the full picture so now I can relax. 
<laughs> on that work, on that work. But as yeah. you know, from this interview, I've done many, many more things. I'm not bragging, I'm just a very busy guy. And, I, I, and I've applied, um, whenever I get bored, I think of something else. It's just the way my mind works. And, um, and uh, the, the most creative work I've done, actually, is not that. The most creative work I've done is in the past three years, actually in the past, uh, probably the past year. So I'm, I'm usually do your most creative work when you're youngest, but it's not the case with me. It's, it's getting more as I get older, which is kind of strange. Probably more coffee. <laughs> right. Before we move, can I ask you something about uh, still uh, on uh, ballistic capture? Because, uh, yeah, I, I, have, I had some conversation with people saying, yeah, but really low energy transfers uh, started uh, with Conley. Uh, so, uh, yeah, I guess it's a matter of uh, uh, agreeing uh, with the term terminology uh, no it is not um no this is well that's simply not true i mean i wrote a book in um because also know, in your that, 2004 book uh, i saw you reference a russian uh, mathematician translated by moser yeah alexeyev so, absolutely correct yes alexeyev and sitnikov uh now so um all right so the um one has to be careful with this. Uh, it's a very good point you raised, and um, I, sh I should write about that. I've been thinking of writing another book, and this would be something I could write about. I was going to do this when I was visiting Germany last year, but I didn't. I got sidetracked with this quantum mechanics result, which is very exciting. Um, that is new. No one's ever done that before. That's completely... So with the ballistic capture, I talk extensively about this, actually, uh, not extensively, but it's uh, very clearly laid out in, in Capture Dynamics book. So Charlie Connolly uh, wrote a paper, in, uh, wrote a research paper, and I think it was 1968, uh, low energy, I think it was called low energy transfers, yeah. something like that. And um, the, so this is a very good point. Connolly was the first to use that term, low energy transfer, and that paper he wrote, which, showed how to extend trajectories near the Lyapunov orbits between the Earth and Moon, to extend them in forwards time and a little bit in backwards time, and therefore you can go from the hills region around the Earth to the hills region around the Moon. That is a low energy transfer. It's a little tiny one, mm -hmm. right? okay. but technically it is, all right? Now, um, he used that term, but this is the key point, which I think is very important that you understand because people need to get this. And I, I've, I've talked about it a lot. He conjectured in his paper that maybe it's possible to go beyond the neck region and go all the way around the moon and then in backwards time, go all the way around the earth. And then you'd have a, tr a transfer which would go from all the way to the moon, all the way to, to the earth to the moon. But he never did that. It was a conjecture. He just didn't do that, number one. Number two, um, he never uh, discussed in any way ballistic capture. He never even defined it. So Conley in no way has anything to do with ballistic capture. Uh, Conley defined the term uh, low energy transfer. So ballistic capture was a term that I had, I had defined. And that's where, as you know, you, ballistic capture means you get captured around a, a planetary body or a Lagrange point for that matter. Um, with with no delta v so the work that libra and sema was doing those are ballistic capture transfers to l1 uh, but i was looking at the much more difficult problem about getting captured a planet now um uh 
Ballistic capture transfer uses no delta V. It uses, and if you want to use delta V along the way, you can, but you can call that a low energy transfer. So therefore, ballistic capture transfers are low energy transfers. However, a low energy transfer is not a ballistic capture transfer. So Conley did not do low ballistic capture transfers. Uh, but he definitely gave rise to the notion that you could do things with less energy. So that's what he's responsible for. And that's certainly a huge inspiration for me. And when I saw that paper in 68, I, 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 that's what got me going. And I saw that paper, I knew about it, of course. And, and, um, and I said, well, geez, he, he sort of got this part of the way there. I wonder if you could finish this. And there was nothing in literature about that. And um, when he wrote that paper in 68, they did have computers, of course but uh, they were harder to use. They weren't as, as accessible as today. If he had access to them back then and had a good computer guy working with him, he could have probably done that, I think, but he didn't. So that's, that's, that's got to be corrected. The other term is, is one which is, the term has been abused in recent years because of the, when this work started, like anything else, there is politics. Uh, JPL became very political with my work because I was leaving there in 91 under not so great terms with them. Um, they didn't want to use the, they still to this day don't want to use the word weak stability boundary transfer or ballistic capture transfer because uh, they just don't want to use it. They want to keep it JPL centric and not give credit to anyone else even though I had done that there. They just, I'm not there now. So since I'm not there, they don't want to call it that. If I was there, they'd use the word weak stability boundaries and ballistic capture. So the word they use to play safe is they say, well, the, the transfer of the moon that uh, was originally done, that's just a low energy transfer. Well, that's a very bad terminology because we know today, certainly Francesco knows this, you know it, but Francesco knows it very well. That's called an exterior ballistic capture transfer. That's the correct terminology and that's the terminology ECU uses in many other places. I'd like to go back to the technical with you. Uh, yeah, so this mind, is a good discussion. Uh, yes. Yeah, I mean, because uh, also there's nothing I can say back to you about these things because I'm not aware of those, but I'm more into weak stability boundary. Yes, yes. By the way, I don't know if you had the chance to read my thesis, but I tried to compute the weak stability boundary. The yes, I, sk I skimmed it and, and uh, <clears throat> I needed more time. I was going to suggest we put a week off. Uh, I can, I can, we, I can, um, uh, take the time to read that today and then get back to you about that in a second part to this, if you like, um, or just talk to you offline about it, uh, however you want to do that. Okay, yeah, I'm actually working on a paper with Francesco, so uh, maybe we can discuss it as soon as it's out. I would love to do that, yes. I, I saw your paper. Yeah, it looks very nice, actually. And um, I, I, I was interested in your, the methods you're using and some, some of the... Uh, yeah, so I'd like to discuss that, but... If, I, I just don't skim things. I try, I try to read them carefully. And I said, I'm going to need some time with this. So. Okay. So, yeah, we can have, for sure, a second conversation, if you like. Oh, I'd uh, love to, specific. yes. I no, 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 would love to do that, yes. Right. Francesco uh, um, has done a, done a lot with weak stability boundaries. Yeah. And uh, so maybe we can skip to your latest works and uh, uh, yep. say a bit about... Uh, black holes and Schrodinger equations. I don't know where you want to start from the big or from the small. Yeah, yeah. So uh, so um, 
uh, over the over the years being here at Princeton, I, I found other applications to weak stability boundaries that that and low energy transfers that has nothing to do with space travel, uh, but rather uh, it has to do with uh, other problems in astrophysics. Uh, one is on the origin of the moon, where you could use ballistic capture transfers to put together a very nice theory on where the impactor came from that hit the earth to form the moon. And I wrote that in a paper with Richard Gott in 2004. And that paper has gotten a great deal of traction. Um, and another result was in 2012 um, using, again, low energy transfers, ballistic capture transfers, uh, to, to show how um, a point can leave um, near a star of a star cluster and go, to a, go near to a star uh, within the cluster and get ballistically captured by another star. So it's the same problem as you would be for spacecraft going to the moon, it's just went from star to star instead of Earth to moon. And they are used Monte Carlo methods to generate tens of millions of trajectories and find the ones you want. Now, um, I'm not gonna talk about that, I just wanna mention that, that there's other very exciting applications of weak stability boundaries and low energy transfers. Now those are indeed low energy transfers, but they're also ballistic capture transfers. Uh, but they don't have the label of exterior or interior, such as the one that uh, a smart one used. Um, these are just ballistic capture transfers. And um, so I just wanted to mention that there's, um, I spent several years applying ballistic capture transfers to astrophysics and not aerospace. And there's, there's a lot of people, there's people who work in this. Now, um, the, the first thing you mentioned about this other work I've been doing also started at Princeton, started in 2009. And uh, that was um, uh, using um, dynamical systems again to look at um, moving about a black hole. And uh, this problem though does not use low energy transfers at all. It uses another area um, regularization theory. And uh, there's a very simple-minded regularization that goes back to Levy-Shavita, where everyone knows that if you study selection mechanics, but then you get much more complicated ones and more, much more challenging, and that's the Levy, that's the uh, McGehee transformation. And uh, on that one, you don't really regularize in the sense of Levy-Shavita, where you can remove a singularity, say the two-body problem, and then and the new coordinates move right through the two-body problem without collision, mm -hmm. where you've completely removed the singularity. With the McGee transformation, the uh, dynamics is too complicated to do that. So what that transformation does is it says, well, we're not gonna try to go through the singularity. We're gonna find new coordinates where you can make the new singularity a rest point, where you just approach it an infinite time and exit at infinite time. But we're gonna do enough so you understand the flow near the rest point. And usually in McGehee's transformation, the flow is usually hyperbolic in nature. So it's like a saddle point. The regularization ends up converting your original singularity with an infinite velocity to a saddle point. 
And, uh, and in this way, you have the time, let's say, to, to look uh, infinitely close to the singularity. Yes, you get infinitely close, but the time goes to infinity. Uh, however, in the original coordinates, it doesn't. It, it's, it's finite, still finite time there. So you have to play this game of looking at infinite time in the regularized coordinates and then knowing that the original ones, it's actually finite time. But you, but you can understand the full flow, the full dynamics in the regularized coordinates enough so that you can end up concluding throughout all of this that you can regularize. But it's not a smooth regularization like Lee Shavit, it's something quite different. So um, it's called a branch regularization. Um, so uh, when you look at the problem of moving about a black hole, um, the, the, simple, the most simple-minded black hole uh, that, was, that was hypothesized to exist, which comes from Einstein's work back in the 19, I guess he came up with those ideas like in 1912, around that time, um, when he was, at the, uh, he was at the Berlin Observatory until 1936, he was there for like 20 years until they threw him out, um, or he, he left voluntarily. I'll, I'll put voluntarily in quotes. Um, and uh, came to the US in 36, but um, he got out just the nick of time. Um, but uh, uh, he came up with these ideas. And then um, uh, at the time he did that, um, he was very much aware of black holes. I mean, you know, that was not new to him. In fact, he comes right out of his theory of general relativity, where you could have. Um, a gravitational field so strong that light itself, that the, that the geometry gets twisted where light itself can't escape. And it's technically black, you know, there's no light. Um, <clears throat> however, Isaac Newton had, was also aware of this. He talked about things like this, not about bending light, but he certainly could talk about infinite gravitational fields too. This goes back to Newton, if you want to be really accurate about it, but but Einstein did the first serious work on this and was able to understand the real dynamics that you could have in something bizarre like that. Although the dynamics was not figured out, it was just you, you had the singularity and, and, and his field, his, his, his relativistic field equations nevertheless made sense there, but they didn't understand what that sense was, they just knew it made sense there. And then Schwarzschild, uh, Schwarzschild, the way you say in German, he um, uh, wrote a basic paper on understanding this for a very simple situation where you have a, a black hole with a <clears throat> which didn't rotate, it was just a, a point mass, like you would in a three-body, probably got a point mass. There's something going around. So it's a, it's a two-body problem. And you're going around a body with a black hole. And... Um, if you look at it from a physics problem, it's, it's quite a, cool. I mean, it's very complicated, cool, and, and physicists love to look at this because it's, it's very bizarre when you look at the problem. So, so but from, the math, from a dynamical systems point of view, and that's what I looked at it from, um, it's simply a two-body problem where instead of having inverse square, you have inverse fifth power. Mm -hmm. That's all it is. It's inverse fifth power instead of inverse square. That's it. It's still a central force field. Um, however, if you apply a Levy-Shavitic transformation to an inverse fifth power problem, which you can write down very easily, 
it doesn't work. You can't do Libby Shavita for that. So um, um, the guy who I worked with at Princeton who got me into this work, his name is, is um, um, Franz uh, Pretorius. Um, Franz Pretorius. And he's in the physics department. And uh, he's probably the world's foremost on black holes. And so I told him my ideas about this and he helped me work it out. So um, basically, if you take a if you take a McGee transformation and apply it to an art of the fifth potential, I mean, art of the fifth force field, then you can in fact regularize. And if you do that, you can understand what's going on near a black hole. And you get a phase portrait of position and velocity where you can see exactly what's going on in a beautiful way. Now, this is not the first time to do that. Uh, Penrose did the same thing. I think it was back in the 50s or 60s. He came up with a phase portrait of what happens near a Schwarzschild basic black hole. And um, it's called the Penrose diagram. Mm -hmm. And it's in all physics books and it shows what happens near a black hole, but it's very complicated to understand his diagram. So by using a McGee transformation, you, you get once again a diagram like that, but it's much more beautiful, much easier to see what's going on. and um, it's really the way to do it. And in fact, uh, Scott Tremaine, who is a professor at Princeton, who's an, another authority in all of this, he said future textbooks need to have this new one, new way to do it, because you can clearly see what's going on. So the point is that it results from regularizing R equals zero in the one over R to the fifth force as a math problem. Mm -hmm. And in, in that fact, sense, that's, uh, the context is general relativity. Uh, I mean, one limit of dynamical systems I always thought was the fact that you're still thinking of time in a classical sense, but uh, you're, you're saying you can apply it in a general relativity problem. So isn't that a problem? Yeah, so when, when you apply these regularizations, as you know, even with Levi Shavita, um, you simply say, you know, if, you know you're the two-body problem, Levi Shavita, and your time is T. And you say dt equals norm q ds, right? Right. Um, so you, you transform from t to s via that. But Levi Shavita doesn't really care what the time is. You could be having a, instead of, instead of uh, q double dot equals minus gm over q norm q to the cubed, right? Which you have in the two body problem you can still play the same game with norm Q to the fifth power, right? It makes no difference, you still apply it. So you still have T, it just happens to belong to R to the fifth power for the, for the, for the gravity, a very powerful gravity of a black hole. And S is your new time, you just do the same one. You do norm, DT equals norm Q DS. In fact, you do the same one, basically. It's a little bit different with Lady Shavita, uh, with McGee, but, um, no, it isn't. You're still using the same time transformation. DT equals norm Q DS. So um, if you look at it as a dynamical systems problem, you don't care about relativity or any of that. It's just mm -hmm. a vector field. You're transforming it with a transformation. You get a new vector field. That's the way we look at it. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> so you asked a good question in your set of questions there. Um, about dynamical systems being a theory of everything. I mean, in fact, 
if you use dynamical systems in this way, it doesn't matter where the equation came from. You can still regularize it and see the flow. Mm -hmm. So anyway, we, we did this and I came up with a very nice picture of the black hole dynamics in a Schwarzschild uh, black hole and published it in a good journal in 2010. Um, and do, I don't know, did you went through what Penrose did uh, for, in, for building his own diagram? Yes, so in our paper, we do a comparison. We have Penrose's diagram, we have ours, and we compare them and show that, basically, if you had to say it in colloquial language, Penrose's is a mess, <laughs> and ours is very clean. And that's, that's really not my faith, that's not really not my bias, it really is the case. You look at our paper, you look at the Penrose diagram, you look at what we have, we have something very easy to see. It's clear what's going on. You look at the Penrose and it looks like, it looks like pasta, mm. spaghetti. It's like, <laughs> or it's all over the place. You can't tell what's going on. Um, it's very confusing to a physics student, I'm sure. But to read our paper uh, might be a challenge for physics departments because they'd have to teach people the McGehee transformation. Mm. Um, so, so the black hole is one over R to the fifth in terms for the, for the force. Um, but it's still a central force field. So, and it's integrable. It's integrable. You can solve it, you know, and that's what you can solve it completely. It's, it's integrable. Um, so it's not, the dynamics is not wildly complicated. It's, it's, a, it's um, it doesn't, in other words, it doesn't have chaos in it because it's integrable. When it's integrable, you don't have chaos. Mm -hmm. So it's integrable. Um, no, no surprises there. So um, now you go to, uh, now if you want to perturb the Schwarzschild black hole and make it spin mm -hmm. or you add perturbations to it, uh, then you can apply the same methods. And when I wrote, when I published this paper, when I did this paper with Franz Pretorius, we, um, I said to Franz, well, why don't we write some more papers? We could do like, you know, several more papers on this and apply it to spinning black holes, magnetic black holes, black holes which do this, they do that. Apply it to all these different problems and have like a whole series of papers, you know, be kind of excited. Mm -hmm. And um, his attitude was, well, why do that? We've we done the basic one, let other people do it. And I agreed, I don't, I'm not looking for, I'm not in a papers publishing game here. I mean, I could publish a paper a week if I wanted to. I'm really not into that. So Franz said, um, let someone else do it. So that's what happened about two or three years later. Some group in Romania, I believe, uh, took our paper and generalized it to many different cases. And they did a whole series of papers. So um, it's been generalized. Now, what happened was, because that result is so cool, um, the desire was, well, can this be used for other problems? And um, uh, not just black hole. Oh, by the way, when you do the black hole problem, um, not only do you understand the dynamics near a black hole, but you come up with results. When we came up with one result, which was brand new, actually. And I'm going to get some coffee. Yeah, so um, when I did this in 2009 with Franz, I wanted to apply this method to other problems you know, this McGehee transformation. 
By the way, yeah. is McGee the student of Conley, which worked also on uh, yeah, he, low energy transfers? Uh, he never did. He didn't work on low energy transfers, no. Conley was a theoretical mathematician. He just mentioned the word low energy transfer. He never worked in it. He just mentioned it on one paper. That was the end of it. Um, in fact, it was unfair that I don't even, yeah, it, it was, it was, uh, he never worked in low energy transfers. Basically, I was the one who sought through his, his dream in that direction. He, he wanted to uh, take his method in that paper at 68 and apply it to actual problems. He never did it. He, he, he admitted he didn't have the computers for it, any of that. So I did that many years later. And he McGee was, uh, worked with him? or I mean, he, no. He, no. Okay. No, McGee was a student of Conley, and I believe that was in the 70s. Ah, okay. McGee was a very theoretical mathematician. He still is. Uh, he, he, but he was not interested in applications at all. He could have cared less about applications. He's, he's done some very beautiful, fundamental problems in celestial mechanics and dynamical systems. But he doesn't care at all about applications. Engineering. I'm applications driven. Mm -hmm. uh, that's, I've, I've certainly done my fair share of theoretical papers, but I'm really applications driven. So, my efforts for doing that in aerospace gave rise to these low energy transfers, these blitz capture transfers. And then my desire to do this in black holes gave rise to this, um, with this work with Franz, with the black hole, understanding of black hole dynamics. And then I got interested in applying this to um, um, the next singularity. So the, the black hole takes you to R to the fifth power. And um, so I was introduced, um, to a, a physicist at Princeton, Paul Steinhardt. And Paul Steinhardt is um, one of the leading cosmologists in the world today. Um, he's not a mathematician, he's a cosmologist. Mm -hmm. And in fact, he's got the Albert Einstein Chair of Physics at Princeton. So it's like they're, you know, when you get a position at Princeton, they call it, it's money donated by somebody, it's the so-so-and-so chair, is what oh, they call it. So they, they, give you, they give you a name, it's called, well, you're the stern professor of whatever, you know. <laughs> but they have a very fancy position there called the Albert Einstein Chair of Physics. And he's got that. So you can imagine, at a place like Princeton, to get a position like that, you have to be <laughs> really a top of your game. Not just that. <clears throat> so anyway, he uh, is a world leader in cosmology, and that means the Big Bang. Understanding what the, what the hell is the Big Bang? What is it? We still don't know what it is. We don't even know, we don't even know if it happened, to be honest. But <clears throat> you can model the, uh, the Big Bang. If you look at the same Einstein field equations, that give you a Schwarzschild black hole, mm -hmm. uh, you can <clears throat> also look at them and, um, and say, okay, well, um, so these field equations basically um, model the evolution of the universe. So uh, they, they're a function of, of a parameter R, where we think of our dynamical systems are as a distance, 
something, right? R is equal to zero means you're at some place, and then when R increases, you go away from there. <clears throat> so in cosmology, with the Einstein field equations, uh, the letter they use is actually is not R. The, the, the letter they use is A. A just happens to be the letter. A equals zero means you're at the Big Bang. A greater than zero means you evolve away from the Big Bang. So you got these equations which are enormously complicated, these, these partial differential equations which would be a nightmare. I mean, you just can't solve them. And they describe what happens when you get near the Big Bang. Mm -hmm. and, and so Paul Steinhardt made his reputation in part on understanding um, can there be a universe prior to A equal to zero? Where you have a previous universe which collapses and then A equal to zero happens and then A increases and you have our universe. So this whole idea of an oscillating universe and all of that, Paul Steinhardt, hmm. that's his work. Um, so uh, in particular, he understands very well what happens when A is near zero. And you, if you simplify the equations a great deal for the Big Bang, uh, you actually also end up with invert a central force field, <laughs> not unlike the Schwarzschild one, but instead of R to the fifth power, you get R to very big powers, but they're not five, they're numbers, arbitrary numbers, they could be anything, mm -hmm. depending on the nature of the singularity, but they could, we, we don't know what they are, but they're definitely bigger than five. So um, you end up with differential equations, not unlike the big, the, the Schwarzschild black hole, but they're a lot more complicated. Um, so Paul Steinhardt was interested in my applying my work to that problem. Can you regularize the Big Bang using the McGehee transformation? And if you can, what does that mean? Right. So now, believe it or not, although cosmology has been going on since Einstein, with thousands and thousands of physicists working on this and mathematicians, no one, no one ever regularized the Big Bang. It's hard to believe. No one ever did that. You'd think somebody would do it, but no one ever did that. So uh, I applied the McGee transformation to the Big Bang in the same way I did it for the black hole problem. And you end up getting a hyperbolic point, which is your Big Bang, and you get a flow near it. And you can answer with the mathematics what happens when you're before the Big Bang, and you can see what happens after the Big Bang. And you can get a regularization right across, oh, which, okay. which is very cool. So what I came up with that interested Paul Steinhardt was that, um, in, so the conclusion I have is that you can go across the Big Bang um, when T goes from minus values to plus values, which are our, our time values, provided that a certain parameter is not a prime number. So there's a key parameter in the problem. It's, it's, uh, I'll just call it parameter. And when this parameter is not a prime number, you can't go across the Big Bang. When it is a prime number, you can go through the Big Bang which is a very weird result. Mm -hmm. So um, I published several papers on that mm -hmm. with myself and with, uh, I did the simple-minded Big Bang by myself because I'm not a physicist, so I, I reduced his equations to the absolute simplest, but in, physicists don't want to see that. They want to see the real equations. So when they, 
when you look at the real equations, my first paper on this in 2010, I couldn't apply those methods to the real equations. They were too complicated. So this guy who was a student of Paul Steinhardt, Bing Khan, Bing Khan Zui, uh, wanted to do that. He wanted to take my method and see if you could apply it to the real equations. And we published two key papers on that, which, which do that. So you still end up with this very strange prime number condition, even with the more realistic assumptions. Even with stochastic perturbation? I saw you, you wrote one with stochastic with stochastic. Even with that, you still have the prime number condition. You still have it. So the, the papers say that if you model the Big Bang according to the way we, way we understand the modeling of it, um, and, and our models do include dark matter and dark energy and all of that, if you do include all that stuff, it does say that if there was a previous universe, this parameter would have to be a prime number. And is there a way to measure it? No. This parameter. You can't verify any of this, no, unfortunately. Mm. Now, the um, very cool result, and, and that was the, the result we did there, and that was published in 2012. We just we published another one in 2015. The last one with the stochastic, I think, was published in 2017, I think, something like that. Um, and I stopped working on it because uh, I think Paul felt that there was too much math. He's a physicist, and he understands the math, of course, but he felt that there was just way too much math in this and that it lost its physical validity. Mm, I see. Um, where, see, in aerospace engineering, you can push the math quite far. And it still works. In other words, you can still apply it to spacecraft. And even though the dynamics may get wildly complicated, you can still apply it to spacecraft. In physics, if you make the math wildly complicated, it may have no application to anything. It could be completely wrong. And I think that Steinhardt believes that, okay, the math shows these, this interesting result with prime numbers, but we don't even know what the Big Bang is, and it may be all the equations you're using to get this result are just wrong. Mm -hmm. you know, so he felt the math had was just too much. And he's probably correct. I mean, he certainly knows. So um, as it turns out, now, now in the past few weeks, months, I've been reading that, and I think Paul feels this way too. I've heard some of his lectures that, um, and he was one of the people behind the, the, the original Big Bang Theory. You know, the call, it's called the, inflated, the inflation universe, where the universe mm -hmm. Now that result started in the 60s um, with, uh, I forget the person's name from MIT. Uh, but uh, the, the idea was it's going to be called the inflationary universe theory where if you, if you look at the way the universe looks with telescopes, everything is uniform in all directions. Were you and mentioning has other properties. Or, what? With Hubble, Hubble and other telescopes. Everything looks uniform in all directions. How, how do you explain that? If there was an explosion, like, you know, I mean, if there was a big bang, it's not an explosion, it's, it's a... So the inflationary universe theory um, says that, uh, that came out of all this to justify what they're observing, came out with the fact that, okay, the universe must have started from a place where it went from, virtually nothing to the entire universe as we know it almost know it today in 10 to the minus 
32nd of a second. Imagine that, point 0.32 zeros in a one of a second. The universe went from nothing to what we see today, which is unimaginable, right? Mm -hmm. And um, the volume went from a little volume element of say the size of a pea to 10 to the 700 power, more than that in the same time. So that's what, the, that's what the physical observations would imply to the Einstein field equations you have to have. And that's called the inflationary theory. And all the equations that we have today to model the Big Bang use the inflationary theory, basically. And um, Paul Steinhardt was one of the backers of that theory. So, And it's become accepted. It's like, well, the inflationary theory is probably what happened. But now the new results coming in show the inflationary theory may not be correct. Hmm. And the, what that implies is that we have no idea how the universe got here. We don't even know. I mean, so even though I wrote this cool paper using the Gehe transformation, my modeling is based on the inflationary theory. Mm -hmm. So. <clears throat> this is why this is why the math is not good sometimes you could do too much math uh -huh. and the, what are the results showing the inflationary theory not to be correct i, I don't know well uh, okay so there's lots of reasons why but i'm not i don't understand them okay um i, I simply don't understand them i saw my field they look at all mm -hmm. different one one um one result is a key one, and that is that if there was a, a Big Bang, as we would understand it as an inflationary universe, then um, you would have very special uh, ripples in space-time. The, the, the metric, the metric mm -hmm. which gives you the space and time coordinates would be um, uh, would give rise to waves. A wave motion and which which has the colloquial term of gravity wave but it's really a metric wave mm -hmm. and, and and these are very special distortions in space-time and um, physicists try to find these things with telescopes by looking at uh, polarities of light light has to be polarized in certain ways if they, if they can detect this polarization and they could conclude that this must be a gravity wave due to the Big Bang. And because the Big Bang was such an enormous event, you'd expect, I would expect you'd find these gravity waves immediately, but they can't find them at all. Um, so these are applications of the work done on gravitational waves with the, uh, 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 how's it called, LIGO, the, yes. uh, the laser thing. Yes, they, they, they have used that, and uh, they did announce some possible result with that, but it was proven to be wrong. Um, so um, currently, they have not found gravity waves resulting from the call. They're called primordial gravity waves. This would be ones that if there, if there was a big bang, as we understand a big bang, we'd expect to find those, and they're not there. Um, and other parameters now that they're expecting to look at are not behaving as they should. And um, 
I have those in notes somewhere as I went to a Steinhardt lecture, I wrote all this down, but I was looking at what he was saying and I didn't understand it at all. So, um, so um, if you go to the popular literature, you'll find, I mean, they're announcing this now, you'll, you know, I should do the same actually. It's good. Some of these science writers are very good. They describe things along these lines, which, mm -hmm. which they understand well. And I can read that and say, now I know what this is about. But so this is why physicists don't want to rely too much on advanced math is because the math is great, but they have no, it may not matter what it is. Whereas in aerospace engineering, uh, if you use all those dynamical systems theory, it works fine. And it certainly doesn't come up with unusual results. It works. But that's because you're dealing with Newton's equations, which are fine. There's no, no problems with those. When you deal with, with, with this work in physics, that, that they don't even know what the equations are. Mm -hmm. right. So very exciting stuff. Now, the, um, the last thing you wanted me to talk about was uh, the, the work on quantum mechanics. And um, OK, so I got to tell you, this is um, something I never thought I would do. So, I just gave a lecture, just to, to give some fast forward a little bit, I just gave a lecture on this at Princeton um, in the physics department. And uh, I gave a lecture uh, two weeks ago, and um, it was very well received. In fact, one of the key people at Princeton was just bowled over by this. So this is new work. This is not just math work. This is, this is pretty exciting work showing a fundamental relationship between uh, the three-body problem as you understand it, and I understand it, and quantum mechanics, which is defined by the Schrodinger partial differential equation, which has nothing to do with the three-body problem. And yet, I have this paper which shows that under certain circumstances, they give you the same answer. Mm -hmm. Can you can you try to give me a bit of context? Because I tried to go through it, but it's really tough for me to understand the. Well, no, it's not. It's not this is not an easy paper to read. Uh, so don't. Yeah. So. Um, also, maybe where did it come out of uh, the, the idea of writing something like that? Yeah. Yeah. Right. Uh, very good question. So that's right. Absolutely correct. So the um, if you read the introduction to my paper, the idea is right there. Um, but um, I can describe it. In an easier way. So, so basically, the, what's the idea? The idea, I, I came up with this actually, when I came up with the weak stability boundary, this is interesting, back in 1986, and I wrote that paper in 87 with the Luna Getaway Special, when I, I did a lot of computer work back then to come up with all that. I spent countless days on the computer to come up with that work. I, I would like to say all the weak stability boundary work in that paper with the Luna Getaway Special and the High ten of the moon was easy. It was thousands of hours in front of the computer, thousands using the best software available. Thousands of hours, and when I was doing all that work, I noticed that this weird result that that if you take a point and you start it moving in the weak stability boundary about the moon, in other words, it's in ballistic capture. Mm -hmm. So you 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 let it proceed in time. I found what happens is it stays in ballistic capture for a while, and then of course it leaves because ballistic capture is a temporary process. And then what ends up happening is you see the particle leave the moon, 
and then it goes around the earth, all right? Now, when it goes around the earth, it goes around the ellipse, around the earth in an ellipse. It looks like an ellipse. When it leaves ballistic capture at the moon, or in other words, leaves the weak stability boundary, it moves in an ellipse about the earth, and it looks like a regular garden variety ellipse. But if you look at that ellipse, you find out that it's usually moving, not usually, when it, it, it's moving in resonance with the moon. So in other words, the, you'll go around the ellipse, say, n times, and the moon will go around n times when you come back to where you started. So that's called an NM resonance. So the spacecraft does n orbits about the Earth, and the moon does m orbits about the Earth in the same time. And do you make another assumption here that the, the mass of the moon is much smaller than the Earth? So you have all the CAM theory arising, or is this just... Yeah, you, you assume... Uh, well, CAM theory doesn't play into this. Okay. Doesn't play into it. Uh, but um, uh, you do have to assume that the mass of the moon, that the mass of the secondary mass point is sufficiently small. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, it has to be sufficiently small. Yeah. But CAM theory is not what's behind this. Okay. It, it plays a role, but it's not what's, it's not what's behind it. So, um, <clears throat> so what ends up happening is the particle will go around the Earth in an NM resonance with the moon. So if it happens to be, say, suppose it goes around the Earth twice and the moon goes around once. That would be a, <laughs> don't worry, I don't have such buffers. That would be a, a two to the one resonance. Two orbits about the Earth, moon does one orbit. Right. Right? Two to one. Mm -hmm. Now, what, what you observe on the computer is if, if you spend, like I did, thousands, literally, I mean, it was thousands of hours. It wasn't a hundred, it was thousands. Um, you find that it'll do a two to the one for a while, it may do several of those. And then eventually it gets ballistically captured the moon again. And then it, it gets it leaves ballistic capture. And then it does another set of orbits, but they don't have to be two to one. They could be five to four. Mm -hmm. They could be anything. It does that for a while, gets explicitly captured again, and keeps doing that. That's what I observed on the computer. Okay. All right. I, I, I observed that back in 87. Mm. Oh, okay. And I wrote a paper on that which um, was the first paper as far as I know on that. And it's one of these conference papers and I didn't post it on my site or anything, but it's, it's um, the first paper on this. And um, so um, back at that time, uh, when, I was, when I came out, I was excited to see this actually, because it was kind of cool. I never saw that before. And um, because when you study, like you mentioned KM, when you study KM, you, you learn not about resonance motions, but about non-resonance motions. That's what that's about. Because the KM says if you have a non-resonance motion and you perturb it, it stays a non-resonance motion, right? And mm -hmm. if it looks like an ellipse, you perturb it, it still stays almost like an ellipse. But if, you're, if your frequencies are too close to resonance, and you perturb it, the KM theory says it's not going to stay close to ellipse anymore. So people avoid resonance motions because they're very complicated. 
and mm-hmm. and uh, and understanding resonance motions is state of the art today, and has been in uh, dynamical systems. How do you understand resonance motions? They're very complicated. So when I observed this back in '86, I saw that a fundamental feature of weak stability boundary motion is in fact resonance motions. So I knew right away, this was way complicated. I'm never gonna understand this. Hmm. So, um, and even the papers I published with, with Francesco Taputo, who is a world expert now on weak stability boundaries and certainly one of the best people in the world on numerical um, dynamics and the three body problem and a four body problem and five body problem. Um, none of that addresses these resonance motions. Um, we, we did publish a couple papers and I certainly did on this, but they're very weak papers. They're not strong ones. So they don't really shed light on this at all, but I saw that was there. And uh, I knew that to ever understand that, I was not gonna do it because way complicated because the KM theory does not deal with, with these kind of motions. Now these, to, to make it even worse, these, these resonance motions that were observed when you start in a weak stability boundary, come back again and keep doing this over and over again, they're not exact resonances, they're close. So they're very close to risk, but they're not 100% exact. So that makes it even worse. They're, they're like almost resonances. And there's no theory of that. I mean, that's like really advanced work. So but I, I saw that. Now, when I saw that back in 1986, the first thing I thought about was, well, geez, this is, these, are, these are resonance motions which happen through, tr- they transition via weak capture, right? Weak capture means temporary ballistic capture, right? So you transition from resonance to resonance to resonance to resonance to resonance via weak capture. That's what's happening, right? So that's an incredibly cool result. But how do you prove something like that? I mean, you know, really, how... I observed this on the computer, and in fact, I did it in three dimensions, which is even worse. Uh, but I did it with the ephemeris, which is even more complicated. So ultimately, to prove this rigorously, you really have to do it for the planar circular restricted three-body problem and get rid of all those complications. And, I, and at that time, I was really steeped in applying this to missions, and, and I could care less about those idealized problems. So I knew back then that ultimately, you'd have to get into all that. And there was no theory on this. So, um, so that, that's the result. So the, so the heuristic, numerically uh, motivated result at that time was starting at weak capture about the tiny secondary mass point yields a sequence of transitioning resonance motions. That's the result that I observed. Mm-hmm. And that's the basic result I proved in this new paper. Using the planar circular circuit three body problem. All right, so that's one of the basic results of this paper, this quantum paper. So I found a way to prove that actually. And, and, and you don't use KM for this, you can't. It's all weak stability boundary work. And some of it, actually a good part of it goes back to that paper I wrote with Francesco Taputo and Marion Gideon. Um, 
so I have a proof of that in there, but it's a, it's a numerically assisted proof. So I would not call it a rigorous proof, but it's, it is rigorous, but it's not analytically rigorous. Mm -hmm. But the, the other part of the result is, well, what does that have to do with quantum mechanics? So what's interesting is back in 86, when I saw this happening, um, the first thing that popped into my mind was, well, that this is what electrons do. They, they move around the atom um, in an energy level, particular energy. It's the two-body energy between the electron and the, and, the, and, the, and the nucleus. So if it's a hydrogen atom, it's, it's a two-body problem, and the, and the force is not gravity. It's a Coulomb force, but it's inverse square, the same thing. It's just a Coulomb. There's no difference. Mm -hmm. But it turns out that when you solve this with the Schrodinger equation, even though it's a two-body problem, you end up with the electron will stay in some energy and then it jumps to another one, stays the energy, jumps to another one, and it keeps doing this. Okay. And um, the energy that's released when it jumps between energy states is described by the Einstein Planck relationship that the energy is equal to Planck's constant times the frequency of the, of the, of the motion. So not only, not only so quantum people, not only can they see electron doing this, when every time it jumps, they can see what that energy is and know exactly what it is. So they have it nailed. And um, the motion can be wildly complicated, moving throughout all kinds of strange energy levels. And the remarkable thing is, if you model this with the Schrodinger partial differential equation, it exactly gives those solutions, which is remarkable. And they actually see it in reality, which is even more remarkable because the solutions you get with the Schrodinger equation are terribly complicated. And you see all of them, all of them. So it completely describes what that little electron is doing on a hydrogen atom. And this is a partial differential equation. So this is not an ODE. So that, that's what you have there. So when I, when I did this back in 86, even though I don't know much about quantum mechanics, the first thing I said was, this is an awful lot like what electrons do. Mm -hmm. And then I said, they must be related, but I had no idea how to do that. So um, I, I always kept that thought though. So when I was over in Germany uh, last year, I had a lot of free time and I went back to that problem. And, 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 and going back to it, I figured out how to prove the original idea that if you start recapture the secondary, you necessarily end up with a sequence of transitioning residence motions. I, I could prove that, and I did. And then the second part of it was, can you relate that to the Schrodinger solutions? And you can. You can show this, they, they're totally related. And, and however, the, the result is they're only related for certain resonance motions. So you remember the, the, the resonance motion of, of say the spacecraft, or in this case, you could call it a photon if you want, or an electron. It's electron, but you could think of it as a spacecraft. Um, it's got to be, you know, it, you have this transition of n over m resonances. So this result says that you can make a relationship between the same motions with the Schrodinger equation about an electron, I mean a nucleus, and the three-body problem, say for a spacecraft, provided n over m are certain ratios. And if you get those ratios then you can do it. Okay. 
Now, I, okay. I could generalize. And they're related because uh, in the electron case, uh, the, the, the energy uh, released says that the, the electron is jumping to certain energy levels such, there, such that there's a resonance. Well, yeah, so, so what you have to show is, well, this part of what I do with the paper is you have to show that when the electron is doing that, that does in fact correspond to resonance motions. You have to show that. Okay. Um, but this was known in physics anyhow. Uh, Sommerfeld, back in the 1920s, showed that if you have an electron moving about a nucleus, that, that you can make a comparison of that to the two-body problem in celestial mechanics, actually, he did that already, and you could show that it does correspond to resonance motions. So this was known. Mm -hmm. But what I did was, but he couldn't, he couldn't show the transitioning between one resonance and another. Actually, you could do the same thing in celestial mechanics, show it's related to that. So Sommerfeld, when he did that, when he came up with that the resonance motions about a, a nucleus, a hydrogen atom, is equivalent to the two-body problem for resonance motions, that's when Bohr, tried to say, well, maybe electrons and, and nuclei are little mini solar systems, right? But they shot that down. You really can't do that. Um, but what Sommerfeld was really trying to do was he was trying to show that when they transition, you can get this equality with celestial mechanics. And he couldn't do that. And that's what I did here. You, when they transition between different energies in the Schrodinger case, or the hydrogen atom case that that corresponds to weak capture transition. So in other words, another way to say this is when, when you have a spacecraft transitioning via weak capture about the tiny secondary mass point, that is a model for electrons transitioning between energy states, mm -hmm. but only for certain resonances, not for all of them. And can you therefore imply something about the causal relationship between, I mean, why is it, why is the electron then jumping from energy level? Oh, okay. So if you ask why, and you believe the model that I have, which is now rigorously shown, then basically what's going on is um, uh, is that uh, what's going on is that the uh, when the electron is moving about the the nucleus, um, that's really a three-body problem. Now. When you look at that, and I, I, I didn't put this in my paper, but I'm going to do a follow-up on this. It's applied in my paper. I pretty much say it. But the, when an electron is moving about a proton, that's really a three-body problem. So you would say, well, where's the three-body problem? But, but there really is one. Because the, 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 um, the, the nucleus is vibrating. All right? So these, these, these subatomic particles are, are not sitting there. They're vibrating, so the so a little vibration of the nucleus is you could imagine this is two particles moving about a common center of mass like a three-body problem and that makes a little mini vibration and that's what's going on by my work that's what's going on in quantum mechanics. So in other words, when a, when an electron is going around the nucleus, it's moving at all times in the weak stability band. Because but it's happening the, so fast. Yeah, they're, they're rotating that fast that... It's so fast, you don't see the, like, in the celestial mechanics, you see it move away from the Earth, and it goes around the moon, it comes back again. You can see this, but it's in, this, in, the, in the quantum case, it's so fast 
you don't see that. You just see jumping. Mm -hmm. And that's what my theory ends up saying. And that's because uh, if you think about the nucleus as a two-body problem, they're so close that their period is so quick that the yeah, it's the so fast. So part is is like a fraction of the period of the primaries. So yes, that's right. So yeah, so if you took the three-body problem, and I talk about this in my paper, and you shrink it, mm-hmm. then the 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 central ones, the Earth and the Moon, they start spinning incredibly fast. And as R goes to zero, they go faster, 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 and what you end up is a little vibration, really, and the, and the other one's going around it, and it really is ballistically captured at all times with the, with the nucleus. Now, what ends up in my paper is I can't prove that part, so, so this, is what I, this is what I have to do. So the, the three body, as you shrink the problem, the three-body problem is only valid until the scaling of the problem gets down to the Planck distance. That, that's the atomic distance, the atomic distance. That's like 10 to the minus nine meters. That's where atoms live in there. So when you shrink down the, the two-body problem, three-body problem, Earth, Moon, spacecraft, down to 10 to the minus nine meters, then you have to throw those equations away. They're not valid anymore. Mm. However, the Schrodinger equation that I use is valid right. and it still is valid so those same three body solutions that you can approximate you can use with the schrodinger equation it stays valid right into the quantum so therefore you get a transition from macro to quantum in a smooth fashion using that the last point i want to make is that the schrodinger equation in my paper i modified it. it's not the same one the schrodinger had i i, te- I took out I removed Planck's constant and replaced it by another quantity. And when you do that, it's these results are valid. So it's a modified shorting. Mm. Okay. And can you also say something about, because I saw in the paper you talk about, okay, uh, I can get captured to the primary and then uh, make a resonance motion and go back to the visibility boundary. And yeah. But I can also escape the, the system. Uh, yeah, so, um, right. So, um, in this particular result, in this paper, it's not valid for the escape. It, it's only valid when the um, spacecraft or the electron uh, stays moving about both these motions, both these bodies in a, in a, in a, uh, resonance type motions. Mm-hmm. All right, doesn't deal with that part mm-hmm. uh, at all. Now, to escape, um, to do that problem, that's another problem, but I didn't do that. Yeah, no. And um, certainly numerically, I've done it, and I and I know what happens is escapes and and you have to use a four body problem for that. Okay. The fourth body could cause it to escape. It pulls it out of there. But it could escape in this one too, because the actually it could. And and uh, I'm gonna say, does this rule that out? I don't think it's even I don't think it rule. Yeah, so these these motions need to stay right. They have to stay finite in my paper. They can't go, 
they can't be arbitrarily large ellipses to this. Mm -hmm. So that, and so you have a, a smooth transition between uh, the quantum world and the and the macro world. It's paper. totally smooth. It's totally smooth. And and moreover, for these special frequencies, you don't even need the three body problem anymore. Here's the here's the upshot of this for applications. You don't need the three body problem anymore. You can use this modified Schrodinger equation, which is much easier to solve actually. Because it's a partial differential equation? It's or? a PDE, and you've reduced the motions to uh, these very special jumping motions. So the jumping motions in, in, in the Schrodinger equation are actually numbers. That's all they are. So in other words, the, you, for the jumping motions in the Schrodinger equation, you're just keeping track of special energies where that happens. That's all you're doing. Mm -hmm. So when you get your answer, with all the complexity of the Schrodinger equation, all of this, it actually reduces to special energies. So if you call the energies E sub I, I equals one, two, three, four, five to infinity, each one of those is a resonance motion. Mm -hmm. So you end up with just energy values. That's all it is. Now in the special mechanics world, it's much more complicated. Those energy values are all this weak motion and capture and escape and chaos dynamics and everything else. But in the Schrodinger world, they're just energy values. That's all they are. So in other words, if you look at the Schrodinger world, all you have to do is look at the energy values. And, and, and you know from my work, those are just these resonance transitions. But it's the energy values all you're looking at. So it's much easier. So therefore, you can look at all of this work just using the Schrodinger equation to keep track of energy values. That tells you everything about the dynamics. You can bring something up from the quantum world and solve the three-body problem? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So you just work with the Schrodinger equation. You have to worry about the three-body problem anymore. But now, um, how far you can take that is something I'm working on. Okay. But the point is, is that you come up with motions here that you couldn't even think of in celestial mechanics with this. Okay, so, you, so now you're working on ways of using the Schrodinger equation for mission design? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. A very cool area. And cool, definitely. I mean, no, there's nothing like this, obviously. So, um, so yeah, so that's, that's what I'm doing. Do you see, I mean, super big, big, big question, but do you think the three-body problem can be analytically solved? No, you can't analytically solve the three-body problem because you can't because that's a, if, that's a fundamental result in dynamical systems proven by Moser that if a problem has chaos in it, you cannot analytically solve it. It's impossible. Okay. Uh, so you can never solve it. Um, how, well, but, but however, I think your question to be better stated is what you could hope to do is qualitatively describe it for all situations. And yes, this would, this would lend itself to the possibility of doing that. But this is, this is particular, see this is quite different. This solution is only for resonance motions and near resonance motions. Anything which is KM-like, this, does, this doesn't apply to. It's mm -hmm. only for the resonance motions. So this is another world. This resonance motions is another world. Um, so there's, there's probably very interesting mission designs you can do with uh, a spacecraft moving about one planet, it jumps to another planet, it does it via weak capture and escape, 
and you end up going from resonance motion to resonance motion, say in the Jupiter system, about the different satellites. And it could jump from resonance about Ganymede to resonance about Europa and, and jump ar around the whole system like that using these motions, very possible. But you wouldn't come up with this in such, if you look at the three body problem and try to come up with that, it'd be too complicated. But this Schrodinger model may actually do this. You actually look at it and say, yeah, you could, you could actually pull this off. So I'm looking at that kind of situation. Well, cool, really cool. I'll try to read it again, your, your paper. Yeah, yeah, I mean, try to, try to read it from the point of view of uh, what I just said, because mm -hmm. you know, when, when you state all this, when I gave my lecture at Princeton, um, I didn't give any equations at all. I just was like, this was just all words. And, and basically, when you do that, um, it, it's common sense. I mean, it's common sense. Mm -hmm. um, but if you, when you write a paper like this, you got to justify it, right? And then the equations are, are, and the math, when you state all this stuff, is really, it ruins it in a, in a sense. What I need to do is write another paper about this where there's no math whatsoever. And it's just done from a descriptive point of view like I'm doing here. I just, I just write it that way. And I'll probably do that with the journal. I'll probably write another one with this particular journal, the Journal of Physics Communication, and ask them, see if they accept it. Mm -hmm. They may feel that's already published already, why do that? But um, I could submit it to another one, like Physics Review Letters or something like that. We'll see. But uh, any event, um, this result goes back to where we started this whole discussion. This, this is not regularization. This is weak stability boundary theory. However, this is all about low energy transfers. That's what this is. These are all ballistic capture transfers, this whole result in quantum mechanics. So you're going around the Earth in an ellipse, right? And then you get captured by the moon and weak capture. So what you've done is you've made a ballistic capture transfer with the moon. Then you do a ballistic capture scape to the Earth again, and then you come back to the moon. So what, what this, another, way to, another way to say this paper, uh, describe this paper, is you come up with a sequence of ballistic capture transfers. And those are equivalent to the electron motions. That's another way to say it. Yeah, maybe it's my bias of engineer. I, I, I'm thinking now at the, let's say, bottom up from the quantum to the space. Yeah, however you want to, whatever you feel comfortable with, but it's certainly a different way of thinking. And, and um, uh, whether or not this will end up being a new way to look at celestial mechanics, I don't know, but I kind of think it will because it's, you know, this just, this just opens the door to the possibility. 